Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 167, Looking Back on Independence, part 2. been a couple days since I've recorded the last episode, so no new patrons. But as always, thank you so, so much to everyone who backs us. I think we're over 130, 130 something current active patrons. So yeah, I, I never thought I'd have this much support for the show and you all just make it worth it. So thank you. And let's get into it. Last time, we recapped the period from Bulgaria's partial independence following the Russo-Turkish War up to the second and final abdication of Prince Alexander Battenberg under Russian pressure. Now, Stefan Stambolov is running Bulgaria at the head of a regency, and faces the challenge of both governing a country gripped by political turmoil and finding a new prince. No big deal. But first, Stambolov went on the tack against his old ally Karavelov for agreeing to work with the coup plotters, creating yet more rifts within the Liberal Party. But while Stambolov ran the regency and, in effect, the government, the new prime minister was the young Vasil Radoslavov. Stambolov began by seeking to clarify Russia's position, as the Tsar had previously said that if Battenberg left, he would recognize unification and everything would be great. But he had apparently changed his mind, and now refused. Instead, Russia sent the older brother of our old friend Kalbars, that general who had so badly bungled running Bulgaria after Battenberg's coup. The older Kalbars was really no better than his younger brother and soon began making many enemies. Russia's position was that Bulgaria could not begin finding a new prince because the current regency was in their eyes illegal. Effectively, Russia wanted to delay a new prince coming to Bulgaria until it could strengthen its position in Sofia even going so far as to openly threaten the government. Seeing that there was no room for compromise, the regency decided to just ignore Russia and hold elections for a grand national assembly capable of electing a new prince. Kalbars took to traveling around Bulgaria campaigning against the government, but he failed to gather any real support and really just angered yet more Bulgarians, frustrated with Russia's overbearingness. When elections took place, Stambolov threw opponents in jail and generally forced the results he wanted. The Russophobes thereby won about 90% of the seats. Karavelov in particular was humiliated by his own loss, marking basically the end of his political career. In response to the loss, Russia planned another invasion and coup of Bulgaria, but the plan was foiled. Soon, another former coup plotter attempted an uprising in Burgas, but this went nowhere and he was captured before ultimately managing to flee to Russia. Seeing it had no other prospects for influencing events, now Russia fully broke off diplomatic relations. Meanwhile, Bulgaria approached several potential candidates who refused the offer to be Bulgaria's prince before arriving at the 27-year-old Ferdinand Saxe-Coburg Gotha, an Austrian officer and Vienna socialite with a fairly serious royal pedigree and a reputation for being rather eccentric. And we can throw in a thirst for power. 
Ferdinand was interested and quickly began building support for his candidacy in Sofia and around Europe. Still, he had no enthusiastic backers outside of Bulgaria. The Russian Tsar dismissed his candidacy as ridiculous, while Queen Victoria merely called him unfit. In particular, his Catholic faith was a problem for Russia and for many in Bulgaria. Meanwhile, in Sofia, Stamblov discovered and crushed yet another coup plot. Another attempted uprising around Silistra and Ruse did occur but was quickly crushed, and its leaders, shockingly, fled to Russia. These difficult conditions soon produced a serious rift between Stamblov and Radoslavov. The regency was also struggling to get Ferdinand to firmly commit to accepting the crown, as his international opposition made him quite hesitant. Many now wanted the return of Battenberg, but Stamblov felt this was far too dangerous. This was why the regents desperately needed a firm yes from Ferdinand. The Austrian soon accepted, then withdrew, then was forced to change his mind when the Grand National Assembly proclaimed him under Stamblov's direction, using his ego to push him to finally say yes. It worked, and Ferdinand accepted but he still refused to travel to Bulgaria to formally accept until he had Russian backing. Stamblov sent another delegation and finally forced Ferdinand's hand. Although he had to depart in secret lest he be stopped, soon the Austrian was in Bulgaria where he was proclaimed prince. Russia was furious as usual, while other European powers were somewhere between hesitant and outright opposed to Ferdinand but no one was willing to take any real action to prevent him from ruling. The arrival of the new prince also finalized the split between the Stambolov liberals and the liberals backing Radoslavov. Now, victory achieved, Stambolov's regency was dissolved and he relaxed for a bit. Martial law, in place since the coup of 1886, was lifted as well. Now settled in Sofia, Ferdinand struggled to adapt to the social life and palace conditions, all very far from what he was used to in the courts of Europe. But his real challenge was forming a government. He wanted a conservative one that would back his idea of how royal power should operate. But there were few left and he couldn't manage to form a government with them. Finally, he turned to the man who had put him on the throne, Stamblov. But... Stamblov by this point was exhausted and said no. But Ferdinand could see no other options and pressured Stamblov to finally agree. The new prime minister formed a cabinet with some men he didn't trust, and soon he and the prince were not getting along. Their backgrounds and styles were just dramatically different. New elections were scheduled, and Russia again tried to undermine the government by throwing more money and men, who they felt could cause some trouble, into Bulgaria. However, all of this was no match for Stamblov's political instincts and intimidation tactics, and Stamblov won a resounding victory. One initial challenge was overcoming church opposition to a Catholic ruling Bulgaria. But while that would take some time, Ferdinand and Stamblov got started on expanding the army right away. This pleased many officers, but Ferdinand's attempts to seduce many of their wives didn't made sure basically his reputation didn't improve too, too much. Now, around this time, Europe nearly went to war over Ferdinand's taking the reins in Sofia, but war was ultimately avoided. Still, 
his inability to obtain formal recognition hurt the young monarch deeply. It also, frankly, diplomatically isolated Bulgaria substantially. Russian attempts to overthrow the government also continued as they led a group of armed men to invade near Burgas, leading to an hours-long battle and most of the invaders being killed. The discovery that one of the Russian officers who led the attack was found in his dress uniform with all the decorations and medals and many documents made it pretty clear who was behind the attack. Somehow, despite all the evidence to the contrary, Russia still seemed to believe that the general population in Bulgaria was deeply and passionately pro-Russian, and that they would surely rise up against their Russophobe government if they were given the chance. However, at this moment, it seems Russia finally gave up on that dream. And, well, yeah, we can see they, they tried many, many kind of things to provoke an uprising. Nothing ever really happened. So... Russia decided instead to focus on coups and assassinations as the best methods to undermine the Bulgarian government. But their task was difficult, as no major political party supported Russia at this point. They would eventually decide that their best move was to encourage Stambolov's authoritarianism in the hopes that it would spark a backlash. Well, which is maybe one of the smarter political moves they've made in Bulgaria by, by this point, but that's by the by. Meanwhile, though, in its early days, that Stambolov authoritarianism was already getting underway. Insulting Ferdinand, or even being under suspicion, was enough to get you put under house arrest or even exiled. Now, to be clear, this wasn't mass repression on the scale of authoritarian regimes of the 20th century, but it was still intense. Stambolov wanted to ensure stability by controlling, well, everything. For the moment, this made him popular, as people wanted stability after so many years of chaos. But some level of chaos still existed, as banditry remained a huge problem. In one example, several men traveling with Ferdinand were actually kidnapped. Not with him there, he had already left, but still, you know, close confidants, people around him. Still, overall, progress was being made against banditry, and... Most critically, when the Vienna to Constantinople railway line was finally completed in mid-1888, travel got a lot easier and required less, you know, being on the actual roads. By this point, the only remaining element of Bulgarian society firmly and deeply opposed to Ferdinand was still the church, which, again, had its problems with the Catholic and was also conveniently being paid by Russia to oppose him. So Stambolov turned his attention towards winning them over. They demanded exiles who had helped overthrow Battenberg and the government be allowed to return, and it was decided that all but three of the worst ones, basically, would be allowed to come back. However, the church's opposition remained, leading to a kind of standoff where some church officials were ordered to leave Sofia, but repeatedly refused. Bishop Clement, in particular, began speaking out against Ferdinand before Stamilov's negotiation of an expansion of church power in Macedonia with the Ottomans got him to finally calm down. Meanwhile, in Serbia, fallout over the failed war against Bulgaria led in part to the abdication of its king in favor of his 13-year-old son operating under a regency. The country was in a difficult position, trying to decide whether to ally with Russia or with Austria-Hungary. Around the same time, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne committed suicide, making one Franz Ferdinand the new heir. 
But in Bulgaria, a new power struggle was emerging between Ferdinand and Stambulov. The prince wanted a friend and supporter named Popov to run the army, but Stambulov had him arrested on charges of misconduct. This made the officer corps like Ferdinand more and dislike Stambulov. But in the end, Stambulov got his way and who was going to run the army, so there's that. Now, as mentioned, Stambulov was also taking a unique approach to Macedonia, rejecting a Serbian offer to work together to split the territory and instead appeasing the Ottomans in exchange for concessions there. Basically the long, slow game. Overall, though, the late 1880s saw a tremendous amount of growth and building in Bulgaria, with many of Sofia's famous monuments and buildings going up in this decade. And with things looking more stable at home, Ferdinand finally felt safe enough to travel abroad, although he still used aliases, false information, and chainmail to protect himself. He attempted to build support for formally recognizing him among the European powers, but still, no luck. Russian opposition was too powerful. Opposition at home was dangerous as well, as Major Panitsa, who wanted a more aggressive Macedonian policy as well as Battenberg back on the throne, wanted to orchestrate a coup against both Ferdinand and Stambulov, followed by reconciliation with Russia. Now, how he thought he was going to do that, considering how much Russia hates Battenberg, well, that's a whole other question. But, in any case, we never found out, because Stambulov discovered this and arrested him. The major was actually executed, which shocked many, thinking that he, as a popular war hero, would get off with a lighter sentence. Now, as the 1890s began, Bulgaria was still experiencing stability, but that reality had many deeper problems. For example, when the wealthy Evlogi Gergeyev attempted to build a textile factory in his hometown of Karlovo, he found it was nearly impossible to make it work economically. Cheap imports from the rest of Europe still made Bulgarian industry highly uncompetitive. Still, Stambulov himself was riding high. The economy was pretty good, his Macedonian policy was paying off, he won the last elections handily, though of course with the usual violence and intimidation, but he was still deeply afraid that Ferdinand might be assassinated and needed him married and with the son and heir as soon as possible. The problem was finding a bride willing to marry a Catholic man running an Orthodox country who wasn't recognized by a single European power. But while that search was underway, assassins were coming for Stambulov, killing the Minister of Finance in an attempt on his life. For the time, though, it did actually increase his popularity, even if Stambulov was quite shaken by the whole event. Eventually, some of the perpetrators were caught and sentenced to death. Around the same time, documents detailing Russia's actions against Bulgaria were smuggled out of Romania and into Bulgaria, causing a major scandal in Sofia. As a result, feelings towards Russia worsened, and got even worse when a prominent Bulgarian diplomat was assassinated in Constantinople by a Russian agent. In this environment, Stamlov's paranoia only grew, making him more determined than ever to find Ferdinand a bride. The prince was traveling around Europe, but not having much luck finding someone. Meanwhile, Stamilov met with the exarch to discuss amending the constitution to allow the monarch's heirs to not be orthodox. Then, Ferdinand finally found a prospective bride, the daughter of the Duke of Parma. Her family absolutely insisted that the children must be raised Catholic. So, it was good that Stambulov had recently convinced the exarch to allow for a modification of the constitution. 
Still, Stamboulov knew that there would be a lot of blowback on that decision and decided that he would have to take that political flack. So, Stamboulov argued that Ferdinand was actually against this change, but that he, Stamboulov, felt it was necessary. Russia was furious as usual, and really everyone was. Nearly all of Stamboulov's fellow party members were against it. So, he allowed a Grand National Assembly to vote via secret ballot so that no one individually could be held accountable for voting in favor of his unpopular move. It worked. So, Basically, everyone was afraid of the political blowback, but in theory, they were still okay with it and voted for it once they were kind of immune from popular retribution. And thus, the constitution was changed. Stambloff at this point felt a little safer and actually lifted censorship laws, bringing a flurry of newspaper attacks his way. In particular, bad economic conditions in the two most recent years meant that the prime minister's popularity was finally facing a bit of a challenge. But Ferdinand did finally get married, and his wife was very soon pregnant, which buoyed the mood in Bulgaria and made Stamblov feel a bit more secure. However, Ferdinand's new bride detested Stamblov, further raising the stakes in the fight between him and Ferdinand. Stamblov was by now regularly threatening to resign in order to pressure the prince, and it was working. Ferdinand didn't like his prime minister, but he knew he needed him and the stability he brought. Despite all the challenges, Stamblov was still winning every election. Yet, despite all his networks of spies and informants, Stamblov was becoming more and more disconnected from the popular mood. For one, his moderate policy towards Macedonia was becoming increasingly unpopular. In late 1893, the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization was founded in Ottoman Thessaloniki, intent on using revolution to gain Macedonian independence before ultimately joining it with Bulgaria, again kind of on the Eastern Romalia model. But for now, this MRO organization was still tiny, but that would soon change. Soon after that organization was founded, a ruptured appendix killed Alexander Battenberg at just 36 years old. This finally removed one major threat to Ferdinand, as many, as we've talked about, still wanted the old Battenberg on the throne, despite him having renounced it. Then, as things got even better for Ferdinand in early 1894, Boris III, Prince of Turnovo, was born and Ferdinand finally had an heir. As per the agreement, he was baptized Catholic and the Pope himself was his godfather. With that handled, Ferdinand was more focused than ever on obtaining international recognition. The problem was that achieving this was going to take some serious sacrifices, sacrifices that Stamblov felt would not be worth it, further deepening the rift between the two men. In light of this, Ferdinand became more determined to finally get rid of Stamblov. That plan began with the Minister of War, Colonel Savov. He locked his wife away out of jealousy, and Colonel Petrov soon spread a rumor that the Minister of Justice was having an affair with her. Despite there being no evidence for this, the Minister of War insisted on a duel. Stamblov forbid the duel, but Savov threatened to resign, and Stamblov too threatened to resign, but Ferdinand rejected it and allowed Savov to leave his post. Now, as a result of all this, Newspapers began accusing Stamblov of actually being the one who had an affair with Savov's wife, leading to the man now challenging Stamblov to a duel. Interesting, Stamblov actually accepted, but the men's seconds, the kind of accompanying people in a duel, you can look up how duels work, the seconds decided that there was actually no reason to have the duel and cancelled it. 
Now, what all this amounts to was that a rift had been created between Stambloff and the one man, man who could help him control the military. So, Ferdinand basically now had a person loyal to him heading the military as Minister of War, substantially weakening Stambloff's position in the government. As a result of this, Stambloff's many enemies could smell blood in the water, and political attacks on him increased. Without control of the army, he could no longer prevent anti-government demonstrations either. Then, when he returned from a trip abroad, Ferdinand finally accepted Stambloff's resignation, triggering shock and demonstrations in Sofia. Stambloff believed that eh, he'd soon be in power again, but this still showed how he was really disconnected from the political realities on the ground. Ferdinand appointed the conservative Stoilov as the new prime minister as anti-Stambolov demonstrations rocked the streets of Sofia. The new government wanted reconciliation with Russia, in particular to finally gain recognition for Ferdinand. It also very quickly began using the same authoritarian tactics that it had so recently condemned Stambolov for in order to bolster its own power. This included firing thousands of government officials considered to be loyal to Stambolov and freeing political prisoners except that they didn't have a lot of, you know, people with experience to replace those government officials, so it created a whole bunch of problems. Another major change was on, on Macedonian policy, where the approach of cozying up to the Ottomans to gain concessions slowly over time was abandoned in favor of the faster, more violent policy of supporting groups intent on fermenting revolution and revolt in the country. Country, sorry, territory. Meanwhile, though, Threats to Stambolov only increased despite his no longer being in power. From unruly crowds to targeted assassinations. And around this time, Stambolov was furious with Ferdinand for allowing this, and he ultimately attacked the prince in a German newspaper, greatly angering Ferdinand. Stambolov soon apologized for the article, but the damage was done. Soon legal threats came for Stambolov as well, as much of his property was confiscated, absurd court cases were brought against him, and he was left nearly broke. New elections then finally brought a conservative-led major majority coalition to power, although much of the usual voter intimidation and rigging was necessary to achieve that outcome. Stoilov was soon using all kinds of dirty tricks to get legislation passed. But what about Russia? Well, Despite being happy that there was now a Russophile government in Sofia, St. Petersburg was also quite upset at that government's new Macedonian policy. Basically, they wanted the status quo and everyone to just calm down. And this prevented Ferdinand from fully repairing relations and getting the recognition he wanted. However, just at that moment, the Tsar died and was replaced by his young son, Nicholas, finally opening the door to mend relations. Back in Sofia, the persecution of Stambolov was getting worse by the week, and the former leaders were convinced that he would soon be assassinated. He requested to leave Bulgaria to seek medical treatment, but was denied as Ferdinand worried he might harm Ferdinand's diplomatic push for recognition if he were allowed abroad. Meanwhile in Sofia, several new organizations intent, intent on fermenting revolution in Macedonia were also founded, with many army officers involved. One pushed for a more violent approach, while the other major one wanted a less violent approach. The two spent some time trying to reconcile before ultimately joining together and taking on the more violent group's policy. Then, it finally happened. 
On July 1895, Stefan Stambloff was ambushed in the street by assassins working with the police and stabbed 23 times. He lived for three days before succumbing to his wounds. His political enemies rejoiced, even harassing his funeral, dancing Huro on his grave, and blowing the grave up shortly after he was buried. Now, Ferdinand was the undisputed political master of Bulgaria. But despite this, he was still taking quite a bit of blame for Stambolov's death and decided to remain outside of Bulgaria until things calmed down. The killers that were found were very lightly punished. At the same time, Ferdinand was about to finalize a deal to finally normalize relations with Russia. All he had to do was have his son Boris convert to orthodoxy against the express wish of his wife, the family, and the Pope. He had tried to convince all of them that this was the only way forward, but all of them held firm in their opposition. Ferdinand's wife would ultimately take their newly born second son Kirill out of the country in anger once the decision was made. But it worked. Within days, Tsar Nicholas of Russia restored diplomatic relations for the first time in 10 years and formally recognized Ferdinand. All the other European powers quickly followed suit. Ferdinand had finally achieved his goals, but at great cost. But while all this had been happening, the Macedonian revolutionaries with army ties based in Sofia led a new uprising in Ottoman Macedonia. I'm sorry to say it's a tragically familiar story at this point. The uprising had limited success before it was brutally crushed. Local populations were met with harsh reprisals from the Ottomans, whether or not they had anything to do with it. Revolutionaries had their own romantic ideas about how to free people of Macedonia, but it feels like the people in Macedonia were always the ones to pay the greatest price. Anyways, that concludes the second half of the Season 7 wrap-off. Stambolov is dead, and Ferdinand is the premier political power in Bulgaria having normalized relations with Russia, and obtained the formal recognition he so craved. But Bulgaria is still hampered by corruption. Macedonian revolutionaries remain a powerful and deadly political force, and Bulgaria's Macedonian policies are making it many enemies in the Balkans and beyond. So, in the next episode, I'm going to talk a bit about Muslims during season seven, uh, kind of in the early independence period in Bulgaria, based on a particular book that I recently read. And then after that special episode, we are going to dive into season eight. And we'll begin basically covering the final years of the long 19th century, as Bulgaria continues kind of developing, striving for control of Macedonia, and generally finding its place in a rapidly changing world. So I hope you'll stick with me and enjoy season eight. I'm excited to make it. I'll see you then. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out more information in the links below, links to Patreon and to the the blog post accompanying this episode with all kinds of uh, interesting facts and breakdowns. So check that out and I'll see you in the next one.